It is a marked blessing that we have today to assemble and to gather. Some who have been ill are back with us today, and for that we're so very thankful and grateful. Others who are, are still sick are still better, but not, still not able to be with us. And yet each of us have been blessed with a measure of health, disposition of mind to gather in the way that we have this morning. It was mentioned a few moments ago as we were singing that last song and just before as we thought about the element of temptation that in fact the lesson text this morning was drawn from that text in the book of Luke and it is to that I would invite you to turn this morning as we study a bit about being tempted of the devil. Isn't it amazing as we reflect upon the temptation so many things you and I can learn from that particular passage it is the case, as we study it ourselves today, our implications will often be to help you and me face, deal with, and overcome the temptations that we face. You'll notice as this opening slide puts before us, we, as of the end of the day today, will have read some 22.3% of the Word of God, 265 total chapters. And in the course of that study, you'll notice we have covered so much biblical history Right now, as we're studying in Deuteronomy in the Old Testament, also in the book of Luke in the New, we are appreciating again these timeless truths that the God of heaven has revealed and how much better are you and I for learning them and putting them into your life and in mine. As it relates to these temptations, the bottom statements on that slide bring us to the reality of what we just finished reading a day or two ago. Jesus had just been baptized. In that sense, we now appreciate He's about to embark on a period of public ministry, proceeding for a little over three years to move about the Palestinian area, teaching, performing miracles, working the very things of God, and encouraging the human family to realize in the greatest way possible that He was the Son of God and that they needed to give the greatest heed to the things of heaven. You'll notice in light of those statements, three times in the New Testament, these temptation accounts which immediately followed His baptism are given. In Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 and following, we have Matthew's accounting of these temptations. In Luke chapter 4, verses 1 and following, we have Luke's accounting of the same. Mark makes a much briefer reference to them in Mark chapter 1, verses 12 and following. It is the case in light of that that today I'd invite you to think especially about Luke's accounting of these temptations of Jesus. I might suggest there are some differences between Luke's version and Matthew's version. And in the mind of some that has occasioned no small amount of interesting controversy. I do believe that the, really that's unwarranted. At the proper time we'll see if we can at least appreciate what may have been the thrust behind those differences. At least for now, let's do as we have tended to do in the past. Let's reflect upon the lesson text itself, placing it in its proper setting, and then drawing some lessons from it shortly thereafter. You'll notice initially we begin as follows. I highlighted it a moment ago, but it is so very vital to appreciate it yet again. Our Lord had just made His way to the Jordan River. Where there he came in contact with John the baptizer, and John baptized Jesus. And you may remember that the God of heaven, the Father, made a statement on that occasion, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. 
a powerful note of affirmation and a positive approval by the Father as to what the Son had just done. He had submitted humbly and powerfully to baptism. You'll notice in light of that statement that the Holy Spirit came, of course, upon the Lord at that, at that particular time. John reminds us that it was seen in the form of, the, of, the, of a dove as the Holy Spirit descended and lighted upon Jesus. And later John would tell us in John 3.34 that the Lord received not the Spirit by measure. He had the fullest matter, the fullest measure, if you please, of that which was the blessings of the Holy Spirit. In light of those things, that now immediately brings us to what we find next. Right after that baptism, the Holy Spirit moved or at least led Jesus into a wilderness area, a deserted region. And you'll notice in verse number 1 of Luke chapter 4, these temptations now proceed. As Derek read for us a moment ago, this reading again, it proceeds as follows. And Jesus, being full of the Holy Ghost, returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being forty days tempted of the devil. And in those days he did eat nothing, and when they were ended, he afterward hungered. Our Savior now embarked right after his baptism on this extended forty-day period of temptation. Forty days in which he ate nothing. You'll notice he fasted both day and night. Immediately that informs us about the grandeur of what was about to occur. This was a powerful preparation for that three-year extended public ministry. He had just been baptized. These 40 days were a period in which this temptation would prepare him in the greatest way for this which was to occur. This period of temptation you'll notice next helps us see, interestingly, that comment about the middle of the slide. Sometimes you and I perhaps are of the opinion, perhaps of the conclusion, that the temptations only occurred at the end of the 40 days. The language in both Mark and Luke seemed to suggest it was during the duration of the 40 days as well that he was tempted. It appears that this temptation was extreme, it was serious, it was very much an intent on the part of the tempter, the devil, to bring into the life of the greatest one of all, sin. And you and I know if he had ever sinned even once, that would have been the death nail to your redemption and mine. For his blood then could not have paid the price for you and me. However, all the while during these 40 days... During this period of fasting, our Savior did not submit, did not succumb to the temptation. You'll notice immediately following that, beginning in verses 2 and following, at the end of the 40 days, now three particular temptations are now given mention. These three appear apparently were greatly intense. Apparently these three were a highlighted conclusion of all that the devil had thrown at the Master during those 40 days. Now it says, The devil said unto him, in verse number 3, If thou be the Son of God, command this stone that it be made bread. You'll notice immediately that the first major one here listed, we all know that Jesus must have been extraordinarily hungry after fasting that long. Command this stone, if you be the Son of God, that it be made bread. 
immediately to our mind, we appreciate easy enough to understand what it was that Jesus was tempted to do. But we notice Jesus did not succumb to it. Amazingly, it goes on to say in verse 4, Jesus answered and said, It is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Amazing, isn't it, that here was a situation in which the Lord was tempted to satisfy that physical hunger that He was experiencing, and yet the Lord knew in so doing there was something inappropriate and sinful. Jesus, rather than submitting to it, He overcame it by quoting from the Old Testament. As He did so, man shall not live by bread alone, but rather by every word proceeding from the mouth of God. You notice, though, the devil wasn't finished. Next, we notice in Luke's version, the devil, verse 5, taking him up into a high mountain, showed him unto him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said unto him, All this power will I give thee, and the glory of them, for that is delivered unto me, and to whomsoever I will I give it. If thou therefore wilt worship me, all shall be thine. Ponder for a moment the opportunity in an amazing way to picture all the wealth, all of the power, all of the prestige of the world in a moment. To picture all of it, to understand it. On that occasion, that's what was made available to the Son of God. The devil said, I'm the one in control of it. Doesn't that tell us, among other things, that this world is in the clutches of the devil that which he prompts to do by way of sinfulness and ungodliness. The devil here said to the Master, If you will bow and worship me, I'll give you all of it. Jesus again quickly responded by saying in verse number 8, Get thee behind me, Satan. For it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Jesus understood well the attribute and the character of worship was to be directed to God and no other. Again, He quoted from the book of Deuteronomy and asserted on this occasion, Get thee behind me, Satan! Doesn't that remind us of the urgency of appreciating the matter of temptation and to not fall in a moment of weakness to it? May I suggest, in light of that as well, the devil still wasn't finished. We now come to the verse that follows, verse 9. It says, He brought him to Jerusalem and set him on a pinnacle of the temple and said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down from hence. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. One more time, we are readily able to see here was another grand temptation. He, in a fantastic way, brought the Master to the temple's pinnacle and said, Throw yourself off of it. If you are the Son of God, isn't there a passage that says, God will provide His angels to bear you up, lest at any time you hurt yourself or dash your foot against a rock. We notice one more time what a temptation this was to prove. Notice again that Jesus just had been baptized a few days ago. And on that occasion, the God of heaven had said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. If you really are who the Father has said you are, 
If you really do have the power that the Father said you do, then prove it to me. Throw yourself off this temple. Let's see. You notice the pride of men is under discussion. Isn't it so often the case that someone can challenge you and me? If you really are the kind of person you claim to be, then illustrate it, demonstrate it, prove it. I'm not convinced. Look at how the Lord replied. In verse number 12, Jesus answering said unto him, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. One more time, Jesus, in addressing this temptation with which he was faced, answered it by quoting from an Old Testament passage. He used the Word of God in a vital way to overcome the temptations. As you'll notice on that slide before us, maybe now is the time to observe that critical difference occurring between Luke's and Matthew's occurrence or versions of these temptation accounts. It was the case in Matthew's account, the second and third one were reversed from what Luke has them. You, as you give thought to that, is there any keys, clues in the Bible that may indicate the thrust of the interchange? May I suggest that Matthew's version appears to be the one in chronological order because there are various adverbs included in it that illustrate the chronological nature. Luke doesn't use any chronological adverbs. It appears that Luke arranges them in a way to highlight the objective he had in mind. And his was a geographical one that tracks Jesus' movement from the wilderness. Ultimately, in that second statement, as you and I noticed, to fall down, worship me, and finally to the temple, or rather to the final third one he mentioned, in all those instances... We notice Luke had an objective to highlight the movement from one place to another. I might suggest one final thing in light of that. Verse number 13 does say this. And when the devil had ended all the temptation, he departed from him for a season. These weren't the last temptations that Jesus ever faced. These weren't the final concluding things in that line that he ever was required to face. As you and I think about these, what about some lessons, some conclusions, observations that could be of tremendous value to you and to me? I've begun by listing them as the truths of temptation. First of all, number one, as you reflect upon these with me, isn't it very clear of the existence of temptation itself and what it means? Let's tackle the meaning part first. This word temptation, as it appears in this passage, you and I know must be rightly considered as follows. The word temptation has a variety and a somewhat latitude of meanings in the Word of God. There are times when that word temptation means to try or to test. And in that sense, that's the way it was used in Genesis 22 when God told Abraham to go to take your son to Mount Moriah and offer him as a sacrifice. The inspired writer uses the word that God tested Abraham on that occasion. He tempted him. And that's the way the word was employed. Here it isn't employed in that way. This word test, this word try, this word tempt here has behind it the following meaning. It means to move a person away from virtue by encouraging evil. 
in other words, to take a person who otherwise might be closer to the things of God, but to encourage movement away from that location by insisting on the performance of that which is evil or wrong. And that's what the devil did on this occasion, wasn't it? He took this scene in which the Savior, who himself had just been baptized, he was the perfect signature, if you please, of that which was from heaven. And now you engage in these activities that will move you away from a point of faithfulness. You and I know that temptation is often described in the Bible in ways like that. Think again about that scene in Eden in Genesis chapters 2 and 3. There, Adam and Eve were in a perfect relationship with God as that scenario began. They had not committed any sin. They were in a perfect and full godly relationship. But then the tempter entered the scene. Only one command had been given. Of all the trees in the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree in the midst of the garden thou shalt not eat, for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. The statement of Genesis chapter 2 verse 16. It is with that in mind that we then notice as the next chapter opens, the tempter, the subtle serpent came before Eve and notice brought to her attention. Ultimately she ate of it, the very thing God said she should not do. Notice the temptation moved her away from a point of faithfulness by encouraging her to do that which was evil. That's still the heart and core of temptation, isn't it? This kind of temptation is that which brings into your life and mine a tendency to do what we shouldn't do, to think what we shouldn't think, to say what we shouldn't say, to leave undone what we ought to be doing. And you'll notice all of that is sinful. This first statement you and I have just noted, the meaning of temptation... Perhaps one final thought, and then it's on to the second lesson. It is simply this. The basic identification that determines this matter of wrong and right is still the proclamation of heaven. Whosoever sinneth transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law, transgression of God's law. Here there was some law, some presentation, and Jesus knew that by doing these things He would be violating it, and he was keen enough to understand it, and he was wise enough not to succumb to it. What about the second lesson? We hinted at it earlier, but let's shed some more spotlight upon it. This idea of the certainty of temptation. Jesus, the Son of God, faced temptation. You and I do as well. It is a certain thing for those that are striving to do that which is right, for those striving to find themselves in harmony with the will of God, temptation is a certainty. You and I know that because the Bible says that it is. Reflect with me on James chapter 1 for just a moment. As James, the inspired writer, addressed the subject of temptation, beginning in verse 13, he said, Let no man say when he is tempted that I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. James, how many will endure temptation? Answer, every man. All of us that strive to so conduct ourselves as God would find pleasing can rest assured 
that the devil will make his inroads toward us. He will cast his fiery darts in our direction to borrow the language of Ephesians 6. And in so doing, we can rest assured that there will be those temptations to come our way. As you can see in that discussion of these temptations, isn't that perhaps the very reason that Jesus included a powerful statement near the end of His model prayer in Matthew 6? Without reflecting on all of that prayer, didn't Jesus end it by saying, and lead us not into temptation. All of us need with keen open eyes recognize we live in a minefield that's been set by the devil himself. Temptation's all about us. And Jesus said, we ought to pray, lead us not into them. As we've noted in other lessons, that statement doesn't suggest God actually leads us to the points of temptation. That verb implies that we are beseeching God to help us navigate safely the minefield so that we do not fall into temptation. As you think about the third lesson on this slide, it's this one. Have you ever thought with care about the first of these temptations that we just have read? Jesus was hungry, very hungry. The tempter just said, Command this stone that it be made bread. Now what was the sin in that? What was wrong with eating something? Isn't it true that eating is the natural part of the way that God has fashioned the human body? All of us need to eat to live. And we do a pretty good job of it. But you'll notice here there was something improper about turning that rock into bread. Something was ultimately sinful about it. Jesus recognized what it was. May I ask that you think with me about the involvement of turning the stone into bread. I do think it's a bit significant that Matthew's version reads it slightly differently. In the Matthew account, again, it says, Command these stones that they be made bread. Notice the word stone is plural. In Luke's version, the word is singular. Could it be an instigation or at least a reminder that throughout that period, maybe the tempter did this more than once? We all know that the sense of hunger can come and go. After you go for long enough without food, then the pains and the strong desire seems to wane, but then it shall come back even stronger at some point in the future. Maybe throughout that period we noticed the tempter more than once had asserted, won't you turn these rocks into some bread? Aren't you hungry? Never did Jesus give in to it. Maybe that leads us to those bottom statements. You'll notice the tempter did begin each of these by saying, If thou be the Son of God. This is a way that Jesus was being tempted to prove to me who you say that you are. The Father has just said, This is my beloved Son. Well, why don't you demonstrate it to me then? Have you ever been in a position, or have I, in which someone wishes to test your Christianity? If you really are a Bible believer like you say you are, then do this, or do that, or speak this way. May you and I, in wisdom, not give in to such foolish so-called proofs. For after all, even if you do it, it's not going to convince the person. May we say that Jesus responded like this. Man shall not live by bread alone. There is something more vital, more needful, and more important.
but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. If there is in any passage something that would make turning this rock into bread something improper, then I must give heed to that rather than fulfilling my physical desire. And that's the idea that I've listed at the bottom of that slide. Isn't it true in light of that? There was no need for a miracle. Food could have been obtained in a natural, provisional way. And thus, to use the power of God to perform what was a needless miracle was to presumptuously utilize the power of God to do what was not necessary. In other words, just as you and I might quickly observe, it's entirely possible for temptation to be like that bottom statement. Satan can take something that's otherwise perfectly fine perfectly natural, wholesome, and godly, and yet urge us to use it in a way that's improper and sinful. That's a powerful thought, isn't it? In fact, you'll notice at the bottom, consider with me the thought of covetousness just for a moment. Isn't it true that it's entirely natural to have aspirations to do good, to perhaps acquire things and to use them in the way that God would have me to use them, to want better things for my family, and the same for you. But is it possible for that desire to go so far as to become covetous, and which now has become sinful, to want something so badly that I'm willing to do what I ought not do to acquire it? You see... Satan can take what starts out as being a relatively natural tendency and develop it into something that's sinful. Isn't the same thing true in some ways, even with respect to all things physical? What about even the occurrence of food? Sometimes you and I use the thought of gluttony. It is interesting to notice several occurrences of gluttony in the Bible, several mentions of that term. I might suggest that these thoughts immediately come before us. That word gluttony has behind it the thought of greedy indulgence. A pattern of behavior in which a person on many occasions takes large amounts of food and overwhelmingly satisfies the lust of the flesh by consuming it. In many ways, that's what the children of Israel did back with the quail in Numbers chapter 11, wasn't it? So much so it came out their teeth and many of them died. A one-time eating a bit too much is not gluttony by the biblical definition. But a pattern of behavior in which a person always gives in to the physical lusts of appetite and eats that which again is far excessive, on many occasions that now would be gluttonous. You'll notice, though, again, something as simple as food. And Satan could ultimately use that to lead me away from God. Oh, how careful we must live. Perhaps one final thought in that section has to do with that particular statement found, again, that godly things are not for personal glory or for mere show. These three lessons so far have been things that you and I can easily apply to ourselves. But notice, if you, if you would, with me, the fourth one. The recurrence of temptation. It's amazing, isn't it, to notice here that as Jesus was tempted, He was tempted more than once. We even saw apparently, even in regard to the food, the tempter did more than once to try to get Him to turn stones into bread. Jesus didn't do it. 
Have you ever been in a position where you felt temptation and you, by the great power and blessing of God, did overcome it, but then a week later, a month later, six months later, you face it again? Notice the devil is still at you. Temptation can recur, can't it? Doesn't that suggest how needful we are of the strength and the ongoing blessing of the provision of God? Some thoughts I would ask you to quickly consider with me is this. Didn't James remind us in James chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, that if any man like wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not. We're reminded, it seems, all throughout how watchful you and I must be. We're reminded in one of the gospel accounts in which Jesus spoke about a demon that had been cast out of one. It traveled through distant places but came back and found its dwelling place swept and garnished. He entered back in and in fact entered back in not just himself but took seven more with him and the latter end was worse than the beginning. Doesn't that highlight the fact that once we overcome a temptation, there may be future realities in which we face something like it again. Perhaps in light of that, look at the next lesson. Besides that element in watchfulness, think about that second temptation as Luke mentioned it. To see all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. I would ask you for a moment just to think about what you would estimate the wealth of the whole world to be. If you owned every square inch of land on earth, all the resources that came with it, and had all the ownership and power that attached to it, I suppose there'd be many people that would longingly wish they could be in that position. Jesus was there. What a temptation this was. To give thought to owning everything and to have complete authority over it. Jesus didn't succumb to it. You'll notice in response to that, He quickly affirmed, Man shall not worship any but God. Only God is to be worshipped. Look at some of these developments from it. As Jesus refused that thought, you and I quickly appreciate that so many today, however, fall into a temptation of far less magnitude than that one. They trade their soul for a little bit of wealth, a little bit of fame, a little bit of popularity. They engage in what they know isn't right, but all for the benefit and praise of men that will come. What nonsense that surely is. Didn't Jesus say in Mark chapter 8, verses 36 and 37, What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? You and I realize if a man should gain the whole world and lose his own soul, he has ended up on the short end. The writers of Ecclesiastes, so many others in the entire Bible remind us about the carefulness and the watchfulness that attaches to this, this matter of temptation. It is with that thought in mind, you and I might quickly make observation of this. As we come near the close of our lesson this morning, I would submit that there's one matter that is still very, very intriguing about one of the statements the devil made on this occasion. It's the third temptation as Luke presented it. Remember, the devil quoted Scripture. 
It was he who quoted from Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12, and said, Is it not written, Cast yourself down, and the God of heaven has promised that you will not dash your foot against a stone. One can't disagree that the devil quoted Scripture. The devil knows certain things about the Bible. May I pause and say this, that is one of the most effective means of temptation the devil has for the church. You and I, those who claim to have knowledge of this, and yet if he by means is able to bring you and I to disagree on some passage and to use it improperly with misinterpretation, he can lead to disunity. He can lead to brethren who won't get along and lead to a church that begins to crumble beneath the power of human investment. Hadn't he done that many times? May you and I realize then the key is proper interpretation of the Bible. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Notice the devil quoted Scripture. He misused it. He misapplied it. He misinterpreted it. And Jesus was wise enough to see it. Today there are legions that quote Scripture, but they misapply it. They misquote it. They misuse it. They use it to teach what it does not say, and they lead countless souls to an eternal hell. Didn't John say in 1 John 4, 1, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they be of God. It is that misuse of Scripture that I would encourage us to use to close the lesson today. Seventh and finally, that temptation, Jesus responded by saying, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. How do you and I tempt God? How do you and I behave in such a way that we can actually be said to tempt God? Because Jesus said we shouldn't do that. May I submit, borrowing that text in, Levit or rather in Deuteronomy, which Jesus quoted, He had in mind a stubborn obstinate disobedience to the things of God. To tempt God is to refuse to do what He says. There the word tempt is being used as the, as the matter of trial. The children of Israel tried God's patience when they stubbornly refused to do what He said. He was good to them and blessed them, but yet they in a stiff-necked way simply would not do it. Today you and I can also behave that way. God has been so good to you and so good to me. He sent His Son to die for you. His Son shed His blood that you might be saved from sin. Are you at this point stubbornly refusing? How many invitations and sermons and Bible discourses have you heard and yet you haven't responded? You continue to refuse. Jesus said, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Don't continue in that state, please. If you die in the way you are, you know you're lost. You know there's no hope for you. What will you be able to say at the day of judgment but just stand there in speechless regret? Let me insist that you please give urgent heed to the matter of these temptations. They have so much to help us with. As you and I close this lesson, we've learned that these temptations were very real. They weren't a figment of His imagination. And your temptations in mind today too are real. If you need to respond today, you need the help of the Master in your life. If you've never become a Christian, why not now? 
The plan of salvation requires that you believe Jesus to be the Son of God, you repent of your sins, you confess His name as the begotten Son of God, and you be baptized for the remission of your sins. If we could assist you in that today, we'd be delighted to do it. If you have become a member of the body of Christ, you've known the blessedness of that estate, but you have fallen from faithfulness. You've succumbed to temptation. Satan right now has you where he wants you. Why not in wisdom come back to your first love? Why not overwhelm the devil by using the Scriptures as Jesus did and have in mind the thought of again living faithfully until death? Today, if we could be of assistance to you in either of these regards, don't delay, but why not come now while together we stand and while we sing?